Has a God-shaped hole opened up in a post-Christian world? And if so, what do human beings do with that time and energy that was once devoted to the regular practice of religious ritual? My name is Mark Dowd, and in this edition of Things Unseen, the programme for those of you who think there's more to life than the purely material, we'll be discussing whether a decline in religious practice and belief has opened up a void that explains current attitudes to consumerism, social media and the preoccupation with therapy and self-help. Is this change necessarily regrettable, or does it signal a liberating shift to greater freedom and self-expression? Joining me today is the founding editor of Philosopher's Magazine, the writer Julian Bergini, the former editor of the Catholic Herald and religious commentator Peter Stanford, and the final member of this extremely highbrow lineup is the author Mark Vernon, whose philosophy and life blog was named among the top 100 in the country by the Sunday Times newspaper. Gentlemen, very warm welcome to this edition of Things Unseen. And can I start with you, Julian, by asking you for a brief opening comment on this notion of a God-shaped hole at the centre of Western society. Yes, well, I'm not remotely convinced it actually exists. You know, the sense in which it's perceived, I mean, one thing I always find difficult talking about this is that there are some people for whom their sense of the spiritual, the transcendent, whatever it might be, is so strong, they can't really imagine how anyone else can live without it. And they say comments about how we, or human beings, you know, have this intrinsic need and they'll point to some rather spurious neuroscientific research to back it up. So I just think if you ask people who live without God whether they have a God-shaped hole in their life, most will say no. And the ones that do are the ones for whom it used to be very important and they perhaps haven't managed to sort of work out something which has given them the rewards that their belief once did. Nevertheless, whatever we call the whole, whether it's spirituality or God, there is some sense of a perception of of a change that has occurred. Peter, perhaps the word God means more for you than it does for Julian. Do you Sounds make, like it. Yeah, do you make any sense of, of this term, God-shaped hole? The idea of a hole suggests a sort of vacuum that you're trying to fill at all times. I don't really see God like that particularly. Perhaps a God itch might be better. Uh, there are kind of moments when whatever is going on around you, whatever is going on in your life, you feel not somehow that God can provide the answers. And I think one of the mistakes religions sometimes make is to pretend that they have answers for things. But I see it much more in terms of God or religion or faith being a way of framing the questions. And I crave that framework. Mark, how about you? Yeah, I guess I'd want to play it slightly differently. I think that I like the line about how our hearts are restless until they rest in... Augustine said God, um, but in something more than just the material, you might say. I think that we live in a world very profoundly shaped by, on the one hand, a capitalist culture that very successfully focuses that human energy in the pursuit of material goods, often for you know very good advantage, but in a rather monodimensional kind of way. And then also I think that our imaginations are rather shaped and in a way constrained by... I don't know, a reductive approach in science that sees physical stuff that you can measure, touch, empirically assess as the most real stuff. And that that leaves we human beings, for whom the material is only one dimension of our existence, the, the, are really, really rather bereft. The Augustine quote is one I identify with, I must say, very strongly. But if you think that that search for communion with something beyond self is a constant, does that mean that if God goes missing, it will be displaced into other activities, other parts of modern life that perhaps we haven't seen in the past? Yeah, I guess that you can think of it as maybe sort of expanding circles, which 
are focusing on what that perhaps which is implicit, that which is meaningful, rather than that which is explicit and somehow sort of qualitatively measurable. And that may begin with relationships, but in theistic traditions anyway, ultimately ends with God, um, not as an object, but as the ground of being itself. Yeah. Julian, you said you don't miss the rituals of Christian life, but you still have an important place for prayer as a vehicle for gratitude. What did you mean by that? People who are you know, atheists like myself often, I think, tend to kind of talk about the loss of religion as being a pure win-win. There's no losses at all. And I think that's not realistic. I think that the reason why uh, you should, if you are led to believe that there is no God, cease to believe in God is that that's what you think the most sensible outlook is. And it's not because you think that therefore everything becomes better in the world for you. And I just think there are some losses. Now, I think that some people think a lot of the losses around religion or around a community and, and ritual and the singing and so forth. I'm not so sure about that. I can do without that. But I think there are certain aspects of the religious life which are useful, are of benefit. Prayer is one, I think, well, of a certain kind. I don't think what's good about prayer is asking for intercession. I mean, when I was a believer, I found that a very, very strange concept. But I think there's something that is good about prayer is that the people who do it tend to sit down, whatever it might be, once or twice a day, if it's an irregular habit, and they reflect on what they have done that day, what they've done right, what they could have done better. And also, they express a certain amount of gratitude for the good things they've had in their life. Now, taking that moment each day is something which I think is very valuable. And if you don't have prayer, now you could just do a little gratitude meditation every day, and some people do do that. Personally, I think there are alternative routes, though. I think the way you try and fill that hole, I think, perhaps, is just to try and inculcate uh, an attitude of, of gratitude. You kind of weave it into just your your daily habits, the way in which you think about you know, the waste on your plate or you know whatever it is that happens to you. But I, I agree. I think there's something which is very useful about being able to ritualise it within prayer. One very important ritual, I hope this question doesn't seem overly morbid, but as an atheist, would you, Julian, for instance, have given any thought to what ritualistic form your own funeral would take in the fullness of time? Well, I have, yeah, and I think I've written down somewhere what I'd like it to take. Again, that's not something I find any kind of real loss on at all. I think that we've seen many people now have been to uh, humanist funerals and the like and haven't found anything wanting there. And in fact, sometimes the other way around, sometimes we've gone to funerals of people who were just not particularly religious at all. And there's something a bit strange and alien about all the religious ceremony that goes along with it. It seems somehow inauthentic to the person. Those big stages of life rituals are actually, I think, the ones where religion is missed the least. And I think a very good example of that actually was the first anniversary of 9-11. America, although a very religious country, went for a very secular ceremony, which basically involved a lot of just recitation of the names at ground zero. That was extremely moving, I think. You say that, and yet, interestingly, Mark, when you get tragedies and natural disasters, I'm always struck by the fact that those Sunday evening news bulletins are almost always preoccupied with cathedral services, people gravitating to the church in a city. Now, is that because it's the only place for people to congregate and go? Or is there a deeper meaning beyond just that building? I remember the comment that Rowan Williams made about how even in a secularising culture, 
religious services seem to be able to provide a container for those kind of excessive emotional moments when we need, in a way, to be in touch with something that's beyond just the utilitarian, just uh, it's going to be a benefit to us, of use to us, but can put us in touch with something that's beyond what we can really grasp. It's, it's about doing it together. And sorry, to go back to what Julian was just saying about prayer... Sorry, I don't mean this at all rudely, but it seemed a very sort of narrow view of prayer, almost a childlike view of prayer you had there, where you say, thank you. I mean, I remember as a, as a child being taught to say thank you for all the good things that happened during the day. And uh, here's a few other things I'd like to add. Prayer is so much more interesting than that. It's so much broader than that. I mean, prayer, to a certain extent, is simply leaving yourself open, emptying yourself and hearing what comes rather than running through a list of thank yous. But I think this is where it links with those kind of religious services, those moments. Surely what prayer is about is, is somehow kind of connecting with people around you. It's thinking of things that are going on around you, trying to think those through, encounters you've had during the day, people you're concerned about, things you're worried about in your community. And somehow there's a kind of coming together in that. And I think the services you talk about on a Sunday evening, I mean, the, the very obvious reason is that people who make television news bulletins have very little imagination. They think, oh, Sunday, where am I going to get a group of people? Oh, I know, a church. Oh, isn't that which, being cynical, Peter? Well, I mean, it, 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 it is. Cynical. It's certainly it, true it, as well. Yeah. But there is take, also... Take something like Dunblane. I mean... Yeah, I'm not disagreeing. You know, I think there's also a sense of people wanting to come together not particularly to talk to each other about things or to kind of exchange views about it, but kind of human solidarity because what religion is really about, it's about kind of... It's about other people. It's not about you. So in those moments, you don't only want to deal with your own sort of angst about it. You want to be with other people. <laughs> First of all, I mean, quite clearly, I wasn't saying that was all there was to prayer. That prayer, there's lots of things involved in it. I was talking about what I think one of the things it does, which I think you can get a secular alternative to. But there's always a kind of way of thinking about this, talking about what is lost from religion and talking about religious at its very best, as it were, and as though there is no secular correlate to that. Now, what you're saying about that sense of openness to whatever might be and opening up at the heart and everything, I can see that as being a very good thing. I used to go to church. I'm really not sure how many people around me were praying in that spirit. So clearly, for most people, I don't think that's what they're doing. Secondly, Sorry, you, if you that's can't what you possibly want to do, know that. No, well, okay, but you know from conversations with people and observation. I can't know for sure, but if you also, I think that you have to ask. You know, if that's what's valuable about it, do you need to do it within that particular framework? And I would think the answer is again, no, there are various meditative practices that people can do which can leave themselves open that way. Now, the one thing you're not going to leave yourself open to is you're not trying to leave yourself open to what you would call God in a conscious way, but obviously not because if you don't believe in such a thing. But if what's being valued are things like you've said, communion with others, sense of openness, I don't think the religious rituals which you use are always a route to them or that they have a monopoly on these goods. No, I don't think many people will say they have monopoly. But is it not the case, Julian, that whether we like it or not, so many Christian rituals which have permeated our culture for centuries and centuries, it's almost too impossible to shrug them off whether you like it or not. I was thinking recently when the World Cup was won by Germany and when they held up the trophy, I mean, most people watching that image with me said, oh, it's just like the mass, isn't it? They're just holding it up like the chalice. Who are you watching it with? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, don't, I must admit, I've never heard anyone Didn't cross my mind. say that. I mean, the point is, there is this phenomenon that psychologists will tell you about, which is, you know, that when you live your life in a very particular way, you see 
echoes and signs of that around you all over the place in places that other people don't. And I actually think this is part of the problem with this kind of discussion. People who are themselves religious, if they're serious about it, their religiosity infuses all their experiences and it becomes a failure of imagination that they can't see how anyone else could have as rich and interesting a life if these things weren't there. Mark, we talked in the introduction about consumerism and social media and that sort of busyness that seems to permeate so much of modern life. When you go down the high street and you see the image of a once very redolent, attractive church that has now become the local Tesco, what emotions go through your mind? I think probably it'd be a Victorian church when there was massive expansion of church buildings in this country and perhaps it is slightly excessive for today. So I'm quite glad they've been put to better use in that sense. But it does, I suppose, speak to me of this lack of... Well, Julian just mentioned imagination and, and it does feel to me to be a sort of lack of imagination on what you might call the vertical dimensions of existence as well as the horizontal. I remember walking into the Gherkin building in the city of London and looking up at the ceiling and all you basically see are the vents for the air conditioning, the lift shafts going up to the next floor, which is just more of the same and more of the same, sort of all the way up. And then just a few minutes away, walking into St Paul's Cathedral and looking up and you see that dome. And whatever the dome might be saying, it's certainly saying that there's something above and around us that's more than just what we human beings can fabricate, can put together, and even more than what we human beings can feel is beneficial for our own betterment, our own life. Um, it's trying to express that in architecture. And so having said, you know, probably too many Victorian buildings were put up, um, there's something very moving about thinking of a world in which on every street corner almost there was a spire that was trying to either point upwards or bring down to earth another dimension to existence. And I think it is quite a substantial problem. It's not just about the personal richness of life that Julian was talking about. It's more of a social issue. I do wonder whether in 100, 200 years' time, when, for example, there's been an ecological crisis, people will look back and quite naturally link that to a sort of religious crisis, because it does mean that thinking, perhaps, that life just collapsed in on itself in the 20th and 21st century because people lost this vertical dimension. That's a very important segue to linking the notion of religiosity and the ecological crisis, because let me share with you, Peter, and subsequently Julian and Mark, I think a story which is a little modern parable. A few weeks ago, I was on the tube and I heard a couple rowing about the fact they had no plans for the weekend and they were both blaming each other. And I was so nosy to find out how this argument actually resolved itself. I got off with them and followed them onto... Gosh, that's quite extreme. <laughs> old school. I'm a journalist, you know, and a very curious one at that. But basically, they solved this hole, this gap in their weekend by booking a lastminute.com flight to Budapest just to fill that gap. Is there, do you think, Peter, any link between the rather parlous state of the planet and the fact that we as a species have forgotten how to be quiet, to be silent, to pause and to stop running around incessantly? Well, I know what you mean. I think what, to a certain extent, you're describing is the kind of values that we have in our culture now, which are very much focused on ourselves. The whole point of kind of capitalism in lots of ways, it's all about me. Uh, the point of consumerism is absolutely, it is all about me. So in a sense, you have to fill every gap with doing something for yourself. So flying to Budapest or whatever. And I think surely the point of religions, the point of all religions, and they all have these formula, formulae somewhere in there, which say 
in a very simple Christian sense, you know, never do unto others what you wouldn't want done to yourself. So they're all about kind of looking outwards and thinking about other people. And I think one of the things that we've lost in losing a sense of religion, and, and clearly you can have a sense of community and a care for others if you are not religious, but all religions, right the way across the board, absolutely tell people, stop thinking about yourself, think about other people around you. And so if we are destroying the planet, well, we are destroying the planet, let's, there's no if about it, we are destroying the planet. And part of that is to do with this selfish, inward-looking, consumeristic idea, which thinks the only thing that is important is me. And I think if you have a sense of God, you have a sense of something more, it encourages you not to think that. You can do it without God, but I think it does encourage you. The one thing I find almost offensive about the way these debates are conducted is that there's often an assumption that you have on the one side the other outward, expansive imagination and goodwill of the religious life, or you have a sort of shallow materialism of the atheist life. Now, forget the theory. Let's just do the observation on this and see whether this rings true. And it actually doesn't. As I say, you've got people who are attached to their iPhones who are very religious. I've seen vicars who have like Nespresso machines and all these consumer goods, which we're supposed to be awful. People taking their foreign holidays. And in the past, again, we've had the wealthy buy their own little chapels in the church and, you know, put themselves in paintings and so forth. So I just think the idea that somehow the kind of acquisitive and selfish and materialistic kind of aspects of human nature are the things that happen to people when they don't have God, it just really doesn't fit the facts at all. I'm assuming you're meaning that I said that, and I specifically didn't say that. I said you can do all of those things without God. You're right. There are plenty of deeply religious folk who are absolutely obsessed by their iPhones or iPads, or iP I get very confused what they all are, you know, obsessed by those things, by material things. We had Bishop Bling in Germany sort of spending three billion pounds on building himself a nice place. Until this Pope, we had Popes driving around in limousines. Absolutely, you're right. Religious folk are completely flawed. And I wasn't having a go at you, Peter, in no, that comment, that's by the very, way. Thank you. I haven't got an iPhone, as one <laughs> to be very clear. <laughs> Mark, this busyness, this obsession with tweeting and, and so on, is there any connect there between the hole that we talked about at the beginning of the discussion and people's behaviour with technology, or is that a misnomer? I think there must be something that's happening in our culture. I wouldn't want to just reduce it to whether it's atheistic or theistic, but there does seem to be something caught in Eliot's line about how we're a culture seeking distraction from distraction by distraction. It does seem to be that there's something we need to get to grips with there. And it feels to me at least that it is something to do with the difficulty of stepping back from our own lives. I mean, let's take a sort of a practice that is big in this country now that's somewhere in between theism and atheism, which is mindfulness meditation. And I think that part of the reason why that is becoming so popular for all that people probably practice it in all sorts of different ways is that it is at least a practice that helps you to try to step back from your own immediate experience, not to quell that experience, but at least to be able to sort of take a third position against it. Think about it. What is this doing to you? How is it affecting you? And at the same moment, as it were, to create a bit of space, a bit of silence, almost around the edges of your experience, when something that's at least not of your immediate self might be able to have some impact and over time make some even quite profound changes. That's a kind of, in broad terms, an analysis a lot of people would agree with. And it wouldn't require them to take any position at all on whether they considered themselves religious or not, or whether they believed in God or not. There's a very long list of such things, and I would share a lot of those concerns, and I would agree that in order to live well, we need to think more about those things. 
But the interesting thing there is there's nothing there which requires you to postulate a God-shaped hole as being the source of those problems. And again, if you just look empirically about whether or not belief in God will automatically sort out those things, it may help some people to sort out some of those things for sure, but then other routes may also help them to sort them out, such as things like meditation, which uh, don't require any kind of uh, even metaphysical beliefs, let alone specifically religious ones. A closing question to each of you. Has the thought ever occurred to you that this need for ritual, whether religious or secular, might actually be nothing more than just an attempt to try and construct meaning in a quite a egotistic way for a world actually that has no ultimate meaning and that we're really just scrabbling around here trying to make sense of a world that ultimately doesn't have any meaning grounded in it? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, sorry, it occurs to me all the time, really, which is a terrible thing. But is that a terrible thing to admit? I don't know. I think it's probably... Anyway. But you live your faith with I that do. alongside it all yes, the time. Yes, I mean, I mean, all the time. I mean, there's a terrible awareness. I talk before about, in prayer, trying to open yourself to God. I mean, I can, all I can tell you is I've never heard. Implicit in any religious belief is the sense that you may be getting it terribly, terribly wrong all the time. And I think if one wanted to be very, very cynical and one wanted to look at the history of religion, you could say, and this nearly always occurs to me when I go to to funerals, that religion in a way has been invented to deal with the one thing as humanity, as humankind, that we can't somehow fathom, which is the death of these wonderful things that are ourselves. So we spend our whole life making ourselves kind of wonderful and being self-regarding, and then we die and we go nowhere. So there's a whole part of me thinks, well, logically, you would make up an afterlife. And of course, the great thing with the afterlife is we have no way of knowing whether it exists or not. You can't disprove it in that sense. So those things are always there. They're always floating around in your mind. But then there are other things that kind of, you know, they don't particularly come to you in prayer. They come to you in the course of days. Kind of moments that I can only really describe as moments of transcendence when you think, actually... There's something more to this than that. But you know, this whole talk around kind of proof and knowing and belief and somehow being able to nail these things down, it's such a kind of modern idea that we, we somehow, we can't have faith in anything, we can't want to follow something unless we can prove it to be true. I just have no time for that. Julian and Mark, when we've heard Peter, a man of theistic credentials here, talking of such potential radical doubt about the fact that there may be no meaning at all to the existence, is there anything either of you want to add? Well, I, I don't think that, that's surprising. I think that people who have the, the most admirable faith, I think, live with their doubts all the time. I think that's a well-understood thing. And sometimes some of my fellow atheists are guilty of talking about those religious believers simply holding on to simplistic certainties, and that's clearly not the case. I think that, yes, I mean, for me, obviously, the the rituals and, and religion are helping us to cope with something, but I think that we don't necessarily need them. Um, and without them, I think the world can seem a rather harsh place at times. There is no redemption and salvation. Mark, you were ordained as an Anglican minister and have really moved back from that and now occupy a position of very intelligent and imaginative agnosticism. Do you miss that sense of ritual? And does what Peter said about living with that sheer possible looking over the the edge of the cliff, is that something that you can identify with as you go through life? Well, actually, engaging with ritual is, I'd say, taking me back more in a theistic direction now. And I think partly that what that's about is that ritual is not just about 
having sort of therapeutic value, kind of consoling, helping us to calm down a bit. But I think it does actually change your perception of the world. I think you do see things differently when you've been on a pilgrimage. It's not just that you feel relaxed, but you notice things that seem very different, something which you just wouldn't have caught sight of before. Um, It's related to what Peter was saying about the transcendent. And if that's then built into, not just in a sort of a good experience, but something that then links back to an ethical worldview, and even, I'm afraid, the metaphysics has to come back in at some point because we're whole beings and we're not just sort of peak experiences, then I think that can be, certainly at an individual level, quite profoundly changing. Whether or not that can happen at a social level, well, you know, time will tell. Thank you all for a very stimulating discussion in which we have done our best on this edition of Things Unseen to make our own small contribution to filling the so-called God-shaped hole. My sincere thanks to Peter Stanford, Mark Vernon and Julian Bagini. Things Unseen is a CTVC production. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.